Take your Bibles and join me, please, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10. We're talking this morning about that series on getting a grip, trying to get some of those areas of our life a little bit under control. And this morning I want to talk about one area that we all struggle with. And let me ask it this way. What makes someone really great? Does somebody who have wonderful musical talent, does that automatically make them great? That they can play multiple instruments or can wow us with their musical abilities? Is it that they can be an athlete and they can perform and make the big bucks in our country? Does that make them automatically great? Or does greatness come if you get awards? You're one of those actors that keeps on winning, whether it be the Emmy or the Oscar. Does that make that person automatically great? Or just because they hold a political office, does that make somebody great? Does greatness come in the sense of having degrees, having multiple degrees, getting lots of education? Does greatness come because you have the ability to make money? That you can just, however you do it, some people have it, you know, money comes to them like a magnet. Does greatness come by being able to have lots of followers on your media? That it makes you great because you've got all these people who are keeping an eye on your everyday life. I would suggest to you that from a biblical point of view, those these things are all good. There's nothing wrong with them. Greatness is coming from Mark chapter 10. Greatness can be described this way. Those who are great are those who serve. Those who are great are those who serve. So if you and I want greatness, we want to be able to develop a servant's heart, a servant's attitude. If we take what Jesus provides as an example from Mark chapter 10, just his example alone, we would know, because he's a great person, we would know that great people are those who serve God. You see that in Jesus' life in Mark chapter 10. Now we know that from a boy, from a young child, Jesus made it clear that he, needed, he wanted to serve God. He needed to be about his father's business. The time that his parents couldn't find him and they lost him in the temple. And they came and they say, why did you do this to you, to us? And he says, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? From a lad, Jesus has a desire to serve God. We know that that carried through in his life. For the past three years when Mark 10 is written, Jesus has been going about doing that which is good, preaching and teaching the gospel of repentance, the gospel of salvation. And he said on more than one occasion that I want to do my Father's will. As he said in John 4, my meat, that which sustains me, that which keeps me going, is to do the will of God my Father. Now it's the time that it's in Jesus' last few days of his life, last few weeks. And he's going to be heading down towards Jerusalem. He's been spending the last three, four, five months up in Galilee, and most of the time in private audience with his twelve, training them, preparing them. He's done some public preaching, but most of it's been private. Teaching the twelve that he is going to leave, and they are going to take over, and... Here's what they need to do. So he has been training them for future leadership. And as he's training them, he says, let's head now. It's time to go to Jerusalem. He brings that up and mentions that when we read in verse 32, they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. 
they're going they're coming south but everything in Israel was Jerusalem was a center place every direction you head towards Jerusalem you were going up and so he says we we're going there the passages they were going in the way up to Jerusalem and Jesus was so determined to serve the father Jesus is doing what as far as the group he's in the lead you read that in the next phrase it says that Jesus went before them And he tells them why they're going to Jerusalem. He took again the twelve and began to tell them the things that should happen to him. Basically, he says, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. And they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, they shall scourge him, they shall spit upon him, they shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And so Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do what his Father has sent him to do. To die for our sins. And he is determined to do this. He is determined to do God's will. Even though, as you think this through, even though he has done a lot for God already. For the last few years, he's been serving. He's been ministering. He's been going longer than the typical Christian does in being faithful. He's been serving God in full time and and to the point where he's been tired and he's trying to take a break and the crowds still follow him and he still ministers to them. He serves to the point that he is drained and he's still determined to serve God. He's determined to serve God even though it calls for great personal sacrifice. He makes it clear. He says, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be rejected by my countrymen. I'm going to be rejected by those who lead us. That isn't something most of us want to have. Most of us don't desire to be rejected. If we knew that that was going to happen, many of us would hesitate following the Lord. But Jesus, knowing that, predicting that, understanding what's going to happen, he says, I'm still going to do it. Even though it will be an unpopular step, even though my, my, my fellow citizens, they're going to want to get rid of me. The leadership, who knows better, they want to get rid of me. They're going to deliver me into the hands of the Gentiles. They're going, to, they're going to give me over to the enemy. They're going to do everything physical in our culture of that day to show their disdain for me. They will spit on me. They will mock me. They will beat me. They will kill me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because this is what God wants. And I'm so determined to do it, he's out leading the way, setting his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And heading that direction going, even though he gets no encouragement or support by those who are closest to him, he's going to serve God. Let me show you what I mean by this. His fellow disciples, the twelve, when they're going with him, you read their emotions. The first thing he says in verse 32, they were amazed. They are wondering. They're surprised. Why are we doing this? And then it gives their second emotion. It says they followed, but they were afraid. Why are they not understanding? Why are they they are wondering, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are they fearful to head this direction? Because if you understand what's been going on, okay, the last few weeks of what they've experienced, the last couple years of what they've experienced, the Pharisees went forth to counsel against Jesus, how they might destroy him. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had broken the Sabbath. They took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself. The Jews had already agreed that if any man did confess that Jesus was the Christ, they'd be put out of the synagogues. The disciples know this. 
that if they continue to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, and more, more than likely, if he suffers, they too. And for sure, they're going to be put out of the synagogues. If they get put out of the synagogues, they're banned by family, from business, from relationships. Therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hands. Another passage, when they're headed this direction, they say, Jesus, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. Do you go hither again? We're headed that direction? We know they're going to try to kill us. They're fearful. They don't understand. So they're struggling with this. In fact, they've been struggling for a while already. This isn't the first time that Jesus has told them he was going to die. There are three times in these three chapters that Jesus gives them this message. In chapter 8, go back to chapter 8 and watch what Jesus tells them. In chapter 8, verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders, of the chief priests, of the scribes, and be killed, and after that rise again three days later. Peter didn't understand So what does Peter say? You cannot do this. I won't let you do this. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get the... Okay, that's the first time Jesus mentions it. They don't understand. He rebuked Peter. So days later, chapter 9, verse 30, they departed thence and passed through Galilee. And he would not that any man should know where he's about because he's doing the private teaching. He taught his disciples and said, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. They shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise again the third day. They didn't understand, but they're afraid to ask. Why are they afraid to ask? Because the last time one of them said something, Jesus rebuked them. And so they're hesitant to ask. But that doesn't mean they don't talk amongst themselves. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, Hey, what were you arguing about? What were you disputing among yourselves, by the way? But they held their peace. Why is that? Because by the wayside, they had disputed amongst themselves who of them was the greatest. And he sat down, and he says, Okay, I need to teach you something. If you think you're going to be great, you have to have a servant's heart. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But they didn't get it. They didn't understand the suffering aspect. They just thought, oh, well, well, if Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. But what is that? What did we get out of it? Maybe he's going to set up his kingdom. And which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? That's being sympathetic to your best friend. What do you get out of it? What do they get out of it? And then he teaches them this third time where he's going to talk with them and he tells them the same thing again. And he says what we already read in verse 33 and 34. And this time, how do they respond? James and John send their mother, Jesus' physical aunt, they send her to Jesus and to say, hey, listen, when you bring in your kingdom, can my boys benefit from this? Can my boys sit on your right hand or on your left hand? And again, instead of being empathetic and sympathetic for Jesus going through the suffering, they are looking at, what do I get out of it? How will this benefit me? And so they're they're not giving Jesus a whole lot of support, like, we're behind you. We'll pray with you. In fact, when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, they say they'll pray with him, but what do they do? So they give all of these accolades, but the action isn't there. They're not supportive of Jesus. 
They don't have his back. And they don't understand. And yet Jesus is going to remain dedicated even though he's not getting the support that he wish he had, that he expected to have. He says, God wants me to do this. I will do what God wants. Even though I have the ability to do something different. And Jesus did. It is interesting that those three times that Jesus tells them that he's going to die, there is something that's going with them each time. Okay? Jesus in this passage, when he says in Matthew 8, 9 and 10, I'm going to die, every occasion is accompanied by a phenomenal miracle. What's he trying to demonstrate to the disciples? I have power, great power, but I'm not going to use it to prevent my death. But I have the power. In chapter 8, when he told them he was going to die, which we just read here moments ago, that he's going to die, what happens? He feeds 4,000 people and their families. He heals a blind man. He has ability to stop an arrest. It's clear he's got power. Chapter 9, he tells them, I'm going to die. And then right, that, right in that same text, he was transfigured in his glory. And when he comes down from the mountain, he casts out the demon out of the boy. He could stop it. He could prevent it. But he's not going to, because that's what God's will is for him. In chapter 10, he says he's going to die. And right after he says that and explains to him, he goes and heals blind Bartimaeus. It is clear he has the power. He has the ability to do what he wants to do. But he is going to surrender his wants to the Father's will. He will do what God wants, even if he could do something different. In fact, he brings that up when he brings up the title, Son of Man. The Son of Man, he makes that comment that he's talking about in, in Matthew 10, that the Son of Man shall be delivered. He's brought that up now several times. The title Son of Man immediately, automatically brings to their mind power and authority. It comes from Daniel and Ezekiel. It's a title for the one who will sit on the, uh, the throne of God's kingdom. The one who will rule the world. So Jesus is saying, I, the Son of Man, the one who will rule this world, I have that authority, I have that, that, um, that, re, that ability given to me by God. He says, I, I'm still not going to do my own will. And that Son of Man carries with it not only an Old Testament title, but Mark, writing to us, wants us to catch this idea. Jesus has great power, and yet he's yielding it to the Father's will. Multiple times we read in Mark the phrase, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, where Jesus highlights his authority, his power in that position as the Son of Man. And yet the Son of Man is determined to serve God, to do God's will, not his own will. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it brings the challenge to me and to you, if we're to walk in his footsteps, would we, will we, do we serve God with that same type of intensity? Do we serve God when God wants us to do his will? Oh, then we have to start saying, well, what, what is the will of God for us? What are some of the things that God tells us we need to do? Well, one is you've got to be born again. You've got to get saved. 
to be able to start a walk with God. You have to come to him, admit you're a sinner, and call upon Christ to be your Savior. To recognize that your church going, your baptism, your goodness is not going to get you into heaven. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by him. Now the majority of you here or watching have done that. But have you done the follow-up of God's commands? One of the first things he commands every believer to do is to get baptized after they've been born again. Are you willing to do God's will even if people don't support you? even though it calls for a sacrifice in this area. How about in some of these other areas that call for great courage, great challenges, and some of your friends, they wouldn't encourage you to go and visit the widows. But pure and undefiled religion is going to visit the widows. Pure and undefiled religion is having a pure life and saying no to sin. God's will for us is to be hospitable for teens, young people, to obey parents, parents to train up their children, to work on our marriages. And you have the ability in this day and age to say no to those things. You have the legal ability to say, I want out of the marriage. You have the ability as a young person not to be obedient or respectful and get the law involved and chased after your parents. But will you do the will of God even though you have the ability to do otherwise? I will surrender my power, my authority, my own will to God's will. Is that you? Has that been you? Even though it's going to be hard to do at times. Yes, it's hard to be baptized, to give a testimony before others. Yes, it's hard to live a pure life. Yes, it's hard to share the gospel. Will you do that even if others aren't encouraging you? Will you say, I've done service for God, but I'll continue to serve God? See, greatness by the example of Christ, it comes by serving, by serving God first and foremost. Is that where you're at? But then we learn from the text, not only is greatness found in those who serve God, But he goes on, and by what he teaches us, by his exhortation, Jesus teaches us that the great person is one who serves others. Serves God and serves others. That's what he repeats in this text. In these three times, did you catch? We we alluded to it already, where the the men are arguing over chapter 9. In chapter 9, they're arguing over who should be the greatest. Jesus, it says in verse 35 of chapter 9, he sat them down. And he said unto them, if any man desires to be first, the same shall become last and the servant of all. So he comes to this setting where James and John are saying, James and John sent mom to say, please let us be elevated above all the others. What was the reaction of all the others? Well, we read in the text. That the others, it says, when they heard of this, okay, they became angry with him. In chapter 10, uh, when, verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes on and he gives them an exhortation. He says, don't you know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles, they exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you, he needs to be your minister. 
Whosoever will be the chief of you, he needs to be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And so in this context of the disciples not getting it, he repeats it. He says, listen, to you, for you to become great in my eyes, in my Father's eyes, you have to serve others. Now, as you dissect everything he said, he makes the comment about the way the world works. He made the comment about the Gentiles. Here's how they work. The leaders in the Gentile community, they exercise lordship. They exercise authority. He's not saying it's wrong. He's just saying this is what they do. Typically, those who have power, what do they want? Now, now we're talking in Bible days. It never happens today. Okay? But in Bible days and in human nature, people who are in authority, they typically do this. They exercise their authority. And sometimes they exercise more authority than what they're given. Yes, no? Okay. So they want recognition. Sometimes they, they seek to be served. Back in Bible days, they had the stewards. They had the servants that would literally come and take care of them. The more power, the more servants. And so he's talking about that they usually they want more power. They want to, to take more authority. They, they don't look out for the people. The typical leader, and in Jesus' day, the leader at the time is Herod. Herod doesn't care about the people. If he cared about the people, he wouldn't have murdered John the Baptist. What was Herod concerned about? Herod. His own self. His own desires. And so it's clear. The, the authorities of Jesus' day, the Sadducees, the Pharisees in control, did they care about the people? Who did they care about? themselves. And so he's saying, this is the way it works typically. This is how the, the absolute power corrupts absolutely. He says, that's the way it generally works. But then he makes an emphatic statement, a strong statement that even comes out in our English. It shall not be this way among you. You are to be totally different. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the, the twelve, and what has he been doing with them the last few weeks? He's had them aside, training them to become the future leaders, the leaders of the church. And so he's been preparing them and saying, you as leaders, you as individuals, you cannot act this way. You have to have a totally different mindset. And so... He says strongly, emphatically, he says, here's the mindset you've got to adopt. You've got to be different from the world. Whoever of you, whosoever of you, that includes every single one of those he's talking to, and by, by sense of Scripture being given unto us, he's talking to all of us. Whosoever of you would want to have greatness in your life, you, all of us, Every one of us, without an exception, every one of us can do this, by the way. The whosoever implies not only should we, we can. We can do this. He's going to be your diakonos, the one who waits tables for others. He's going to be the one who is going to be the doulos, the lowliest of all the servants in any household, the one who typically washed the feet, the low man on the totem pole. 
That's not how we operate. We operate more like the disciples. We usually argue over who's the greatest in the household. Who, which one should get served instead of being served. That's us by human nature. And he says, hey, listen, I want you to do something totally different. I want you to go against your nature and seek to be a servant. Seek to be a slave to others. Give yourself to the point that you would do whatever it takes to serve other people. And then he gives us the ultimate example himself. With the exhortation, he gives the example, Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and do the ultimate ministry. Now, you and I know Jesus served. If we did this just a few weeks ago, I asked you this question, how did Jesus serve? And some of you piped up and you gave these types of ideas. He assisted people. He prayed for those in trouble. He took time to teach people that he visited the unlovely, that he cared for the needy, that Jesus at times encouraged the hurting, that he prayed, he washed the feet of others, that he ministered time and time and time and time again, ministering to these different individuals and people. So we have to ask ourselves these questions. Do we have this same type of attitude? Are we willing to serve in that same type of capacity? And then he goes on and he says, wait a minute. Not only did he serve in those small ways, but he gave his life. And he points out very, very simply, he was willing to personally make this sacrifice. He did it physically. He as well did it willingly. He just didn't talk about it. He actually did it. It was more than intention. He did it without bias towards different individuals. He as well, he knew that the disciples wouldn't appreciate it. He knew that many people wouldn't take advantage of it. And yet he still served without being lauded for it even though he deserved so much better. He served. He served others. He gave himself. And so we have to ask ourselves these questions. Do you, do I have a servant's attitude where we would do helpful tasks for others? Willingly, physically. Would you willingly, physically serve by visiting the needy? Those who are lonely, Would you physically actually do it, not just talk about it, by taking time to assist, to encourage the sick, the lonely, to put others in front of yourself, to do this without having to be noticed or recognized for your teaching of the kids or for working in some ministry that nobody notices? Would you receive a youngster the way Jesus received youngsters to make them feel like they were important? Jesus traveled a long distance, put himself in danger to visit people who were grieving the loss of a loved one. Would you do that for somebody who was a friend? Jesus did this where he taught the disciples time and time again. He prayed all night for his disciples while they were in a boat. Would you take time for extended prayer for others? Would you be charitable when you don't have much? Jesus did. The temple tax that he paid was for helping the widows. There's a specific tax. That's the one that he paid. Would Would you have a servant's heart towards your family members, 
towards others within the body of Christ? Would you physically give up time and energy to go out of your way to minister, to help, to visit, to share the truth, to pray? Jesus makes it so clear. He said, those who are great, they serve God and they serve others. They're willing to do this. They make this their goal, their life. There's a gal or man who's writing a story from Baltimore. They write about how they thought they would have opportunity to maybe serve other people by opening up their home, a room in their house that was extra, to people who would come to John Hopkins for treatment, medical treatment, who couldn't afford a hotel, and so they would open up their home and just charge some small amount, but they would help people out that way. And they write about one experience. One summer evening as I was fixing supper, there was a knock at the door, and I opened it to see a truly awful-looking man. Why, I thought to myself, he's hardly taller than my 8-year-old. He was stooped, he shriveled, but the appalling part of him was his face. It was lopsided from the swelling, the red and raw texture of his face. Yet his voice was pleasant as he said, Good evening. I've come to see if you've a room for just one night. I came for a treatment this morning from the eastern shores, and there's no bus until morning. He told me he'd been hunting for a room ever since noontime when the treatment was over, but no success. No one would have a room for him. I guess it's my face. I know it looks terrible, but my doctor says with a few more treatments. For a moment, I hesitated. His next words convinced me. I could sleep on the rocking chair here on the porch. My bus leaves early in the morning. I told him no. We would find a bed, but to rest on the porch while I get things ready. Meanwhile, then I went inside, finished supper, and when we were ready to eat, I went out and asked him if he would join us. No, thank you. I have plenty, as he held up a brown paper bag filled with food. When I had finished the dishes, I went out to the porch to talk with him. It didn't take long to see that this man had an oversized heart crowded into that tiny, shriveled body. He told me he had fished for a living to support his daughter, five children, her five children, excuse me, and her husband. And now he was hopelessly crippled from a back injury. He didn't tell it by the way of his complaints. In fact, every other sentence was prefaced with a thanks to God for his many blessings. He was grateful that no pain accompanied his disease, which was apparently a form of skin cancer. He thanked God for giving him the strength to keep going. At bedtime, we put a camp cot in the children's room for him. When I got up in the morning, the bed linens were neatly folded. The little man was out on the porch. He refused breakfast, but just before he left for his bus, he asked... Haltingly, could I please come back and stay here the next time I have a treatment? I won't put you out. I can sleep in a chair here on the porch. And then he added, your children made me feel at home. Grown-ups aren't as bothered by my face, but children, they don't seem to mind so much. I told him he was welcome to come again, and on his next trip, he arrived a little after seven in the morning. As a gift, he brought a big fish and a large quart of oysters. He said he had shucked them that morning before he had left so that they'd be nice and fresh. I knew his bus left at 4 a.m., so I wondered what time he had to get up in order to do this for us. In the years following, he came to stay overnight with us. There was several times, but there was never a time he did not bring a fish, oysters, or vegetables from his garden. 
Other times we receive packages in the mail, always special delivery, fish, oysters packed in a box with a fresh spinach or kale, every leaf carefully washed, knowing that he must walk three miles to take this to the post office and how little money he had, these gifts were doubly precious to us. When I see, receive these little remembrances, I often thought of a comment our next-door neighbor had made the first night or the day after the first night he was with us. With us. Did you keep that awful-looking man at your house? I turned him away. You can lose rumors and renters by putting up with such people. Maybe we did lose some rumors once or twice, but oh, if they could only have known him, perhaps their illness would have been easier for them to bear. I know our family always will be grateful to have known him. From him we learned what, was, what it was to accept the good with the bad without complaint and with gratitude. We were the ones who were blessed because we decided that we would serve others. What about you? Would you take in somebody like that? Would you reach out to somebody like that? What about serving God and others the way Jesus tells us to? Father, it is one thing for us to hear a message. It's going to be a whole other thing to do it. We sit here, we have good intentions, but you're going to plop in our laps this week opportunities that are going to be challenging for us. You're going to place in our laps decisions we have to make. Will we serve self or you? Help every single one here to make the right decision of serving you. Help the believers to be more bold in their service, to be more obedient to your commands. Help we believers to have the right attitude of serving you and serving our fellow believers. Help us to get rid of what the disciples struggled with, jealousies and critical spirits, and help us to have an attitude of doing what helps that other person more and more and more. And let that servanthood attitude permeate this ministry so that others who come may see servanthood on display by all who are in attendance. Help us to have this spirit. Help us to live up to this.